I'm Alicia. And I'm Ashley. And we are Murd Nerds. Hello again, fellow Murd Nerds. If this isn't your first time here with us, welcome back. And if you're listening for the first time and you have no idea what the heck is going on, Murd Nerds is a weekly true crime podcast featuring myself, Alicia, and my co-host and lifelong best friend, Ashley. Hello. And on board, we also have our producer and commentator, Jeremy of Golden Mojo Music. Hi. (laughs) Each week, either Ashley or I research, retell, and discuss an unsolved murder or missing person case within our home state of Indiana. And before we jump into things, Jeremy... You have a podcast out. I do have a podcast out now on all of your streamers. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, Spotify, Amazon, Google, all those great ones. <laughs> so go ahead and check out that. It's Golden Mojo Podcast. Golden Gold- Image Bitch Podcast. Podcast. My bad. Uh, <laughs> Man. I'm sorry. I'm, I get them confused. There's so many names. We're still working on merch. <laughs> so recently we started a new opening segment where we answer questions about the show, ourselves, our content, true crime, or anything else you're curious about. So if you have a question that you'd like us to answer and to be featured on an episode, there is a link on our social media bios where you can anonymously ask a question. But if you would like to be featured, just include your name or social media tag at the end of this question. So Jeremy, would you like to go ahead and answer the question for the week? Uh, You want me to answer the question? Sorry. (laughs) Not answer. Ask. (laughs) I have the question. I'm very hungry right now. I have the question of the week. This week's question comes from Amanda. Shout out to Amanda. Hi, Amanda. She says, how do you determine which cases out of the many to cover in an episode? Um, okay, I'll go first. Um, I have my sister help me a lot, actually. Brittany. Shout out to Brittany. Hi, She's Brittany. great. Yo, yo. She helps me a lot. She helps me research. She actually helped me on uh, my last case, and I forgot to shout her out, so... I'll she can get a shout now. out in mine. Yeah. Hi, Brittany. <laughs> um, so she'll send me a name and I'll do a little bit of research just to make sure I can actually formulate or formulate form an episode out of it and then um, kind of just go from there. Uh, I have a lot of trouble choosing. It's hard for me to like put one name or one case or one person in front of another. So she really does. I rely on her quite heavily for my case choice. That way I don't have to like sift through. through. Yes. And it's just, it's just a lot. So yeah. she does, she'll present me with like a, a few, maybe three names and then I'll go and I'll find the one that I think best, you know, I can tell the best story mm-hmm. or that I can best tell their story, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So when I find a case that I want to retell, there's some things that I look for. How much information is given because sometimes there's just, simply not enough available and it makes telling the story really difficult. I think about, can I retell this story in a way that would intrigue the audience enough that it'll get stuck in their minds? Can I bring this case to life so that it will get people talking? Will it get them interested enough to ask questions and ask others questions? And sometimes cases just speak to me and I literally can't stop thinking about them. And one of those cases is the one that I'm going to tell you about today. I remember the exact day that I heard about it. It was probably about five years ago. 
my husband and our best friends, Jessica and Skyler, who's Jeremy's son and daughter-in-law, we all went out to eat at Bob Evans. And I don't remember how we started talking about true crime and unsolved murders, but Skylar asked if I had ever heard about the murder of Brandy Peltz or the book that was loosely based off her case. I was immediately intrigued. I started looking online for whatever I could about this case, and frankly, there's not much at all. But when is there ever? So Brandy has stayed consistently in my mind since then. I've mentioned it before in episode two, which was the Darlene Hulse case, Brandy's case was actually supposed to be the first case to air for Murder Nerds, but I wasn't ready to take it on at that point. But today, today I am ready. It's time. It's time. This is the unsolved murder of Brandy Peltz of Argus, Indiana. And I, before I get started, I would like to just give a content warning before we move on. This story does include the murder and sexual assault of a child, so it definitely won't be appropriate for young or sensitive listeners. If you need to skip this episode, we totally understand, and we'll see you next week. My sources for this case are a six-part series by Cold Case Chronicles covering the case, our tried and true, findagrave.com, mm-hmm. the Plymouth Pilot newspaper, the Rochester Sentinel newspaper, and the what? The Bones of Autumn? Not the Bones of oh. Autumn. Not the Bones of Autumn this week. <laughs> the Justice for Brandy Pelt's Facebook page. So, before I even get started, I'm going to tell you about my journey with researching this case. So, when I was taking notes, I was re-listening to the Cold Case Chronicles podcast, and it was probably 10, 11 o'clock at night. And I was listening through my headphones on my iPad while I was using my laptop to type the notes. And I was halfway through listening to the second episode, and it just stopped playing. So I tried to push play. It wouldn't work. I exit out of the Apple Podcasts app, go back in, try to play it again. It starts at the beginning of episode two, then just jumped right to five minutes in, then jumped all the way to the end and moved on to episode three. Then it did the exact same thing. Started at the beginning, went to five minutes in, then went all the way to the end. I was like, okay, my iPad's an older model. Maybe it's just being weird. So I clicked on a different podcast. It worked totally fine. Hmm. I got on my iPhone, tried to play it through there. Same exact thing happened, and only on Brandy's episodes in Cold Case Chronicles. It could be totally happenstance. But it made me so uncomfortable that I just shut everything off and went to bed and said, I'll work on this tomorrow. And then the next morning at 6 a.m., everything worked fine when I went back to taking notes. So Mm. do whatever you want with that information. I just needed to include it because it made me feel weird. Spooky, spooky. Yes. So Argus, Indiana is located in northern Indiana, and it's the definition of rural small town population is a little over 1,800 people, and at the time of Brandy's murder, it was only around 1,500. It's mostly farmland and small family-owned businesses. There's truly nothing to do in Argus. Everyone knows everyone there, and most of the people that I know from Argus have since left because it's so unexciting. Lame. Yeah. But fun fact about Argus. Argus was given its name in tribute to the ancient Greek city, Argus, from the famous Iliad Homer. And I thought that was interesting because it seems really It's like an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah, for real. 
So if you've been listening since the beginning, I'm sure you've come to realize the thread that continues to intertwine all of these cases together. Small towns are breeding grounds for rumors and speculation. Everyone talks. This case is no different. But unfortunately for Brandy's case, it went completely beyond just small town gossip. There was an entire book written about the rumors, even creating some rumors rumors of its own. It blurred the lines between what is fact and what is fiction within the unsolved murder of Brandy Peltz. Brandy was born October 11, 1975 in South Bend, Indiana. She was the first child her parents had, and she was an only child for her entire life. She lived with both of her parents and even had her own playroom in the house for just her toys and her belongings. One thing that was very important to Brandy was her friends, and she had a lot of them. It wasn't abnormal for Brandy's house to be the gathering place or where all the sleepovers happened. She really liked playing with makeup, but she couldn't wear it because it made her skin break out from an allergic reaction. So in spite of that, she still loved to play with it, and she would always do her friends' makeup whenever they were over. Brandy was really well-liked by everyone and was known for being just a very kind and sweet girl. Her mother, Roxanne Peltz, she went by Roxy, so that's what I'll continue to call her throughout the episode. Uh, She worked at the local hardware store. At the time, it was called Holland's Hardware Store, but now it's called Do It Best Argus Hardware. Roxy was known as being pretty stern. A lot of people have stated that she lacked the motherly love, and to me, Making that kind of statement about someone is kind of ridiculous, because as a mother, I feel like you're expected to fit this criteria of how you should show your child love and affection. I know within my own relationship, my husband comes off as the softer parent and I come off as the harder one, but that doesn't mean I love my kids any less and definitely doesn't mean that I'm capable of doing what Roxy is insinuated to have done within this story. There is one recollection that came from Brandy's Girl Scout leader that I wanted to include, though. She saw Brandy at meetings every week. One week, she arrived with a broken arm and said she fell down the stairs. We've all heard that story, Mm -hmm. you know, from random people. But when Roxy came to pick her up, Brandy's entire attitude and liveliness changed. The Girl Scout leader was taken aback by just how different she was and joked to Brandy about being careful around stairs. Roxy said, Brandy is such a klutz. And she must have said it in a way that really made the leader take note of it. And then at the funeral, or excuse me, at the viewing for Brandy, the leader attended and noticed that Roxy didn't go up to the casket at all. She instead spent the whole time just walking around and chatting with everyone. Which, once again, it's really unfair to base someone's entire life off one or two instances. I personally hate funerals. I mean, who likes them? But I know I probably look super insensitive when I'm at funerals because I'm just kind of disconnected. Death is terrifying to me. The irony of doing this whole podcast. Yeah. But I know there's been several times at funerals where I try to just like joke around and change the atmosphere because the funeral is just too impossibly difficult for me. And I act that way without even realizing it. I'm just so anxious. Everyone handles grief differently. And it doesn't always look like erratic sobbing or you know, being upset. Mm -hmm. Brandy's father was Stephen Peltz, and Stephen worked for Mallard Travel Trailers RV Factory in Etna Green, Indiana. Etna Green is only about 14 miles from Argus, and I don't believe the Mallard Factory is still in service anymore, but from what I gathered, it was absorbed by Heartland RV, but I could be wrong about that. 
Stephen was known as being a very loving and kind father. We're led to believe that he and Roxy were just total opposites. Brandy definitely took more after her father than her mother. A former family member had commented that Stephen was a great guy. So everything that went wrong was caused by Roxy. Roxy had a complete had complete and total control over Stephen. Obviously, we don't know if this is true. It's pure speculation and opinion just from outsiders. So something else that was stated about Roxy is that she seemed to have a bit of an issue with infidelity. Whether this is true or not, there's not much proof and could just be another cog in the rumor mill. But Brandy's friends had said that Brandy would tell them how she would get locked in her room pretty often. And she even started showing them her safe space that she had in her closet. How how old was she during all these all these things you're saying? I mean, this is just kind of like the beginning of her life. Just okay. overviewing this kind of thing. I'll get to okay. that. In her closet, she had this safe space that she kept all of her stuffed animals and like comforting things. And she would just comfort herself when she was upset. So... I'm wondering if she was asked to go in her bedroom because her parents were arguing about Roxy's suspected cheating. And I also think it's important to note that if it was true that Roxy was bringing other men around, that one of them could have preyed upon Brandy. And as we get more into the story, there are definitely reasons to suspect this. December 11th, 1986 was a Thursday. Brandy had stayed home all week, out of school sick. There had been a Christmas concert that was put on by the school, and a lot of other kids had gotten the same respiratory flu Brandy had, and they were also out of school. So Brandy was an 11-year-old fifth grader, and I feel like it's taboo now, but this was so common for 11-year-olds to stay home sick by themselves or to get themselves ready for school or go home after school and wait for their parents to come home from work. This was the era of latchkey kids. And I remember getting myself ready for school at 11 years old, but now I can't even imagine my 12-year-old home alone for longer than 20 minutes. Hmm. So at around noon, Roxy was on her lunch break. She had gone home during her break every day that week to check on Brandy. And on this particular day, she and a male friend of hers, Butch, drove from the hardware store back to the Pelts home, picking up a pizza along the way for lunch. After lunch, Roxy went back to work. I don't know if Butch also worked there, and that's why he drove Roxy home. She, from my understanding, walked to work and walked home from work, so I don't know if he was just happened to be there and gave her a ride home or what. But I'm pretty unsure of what exactly happened with Butch. At around 1 p.m., Brandy had called her mom to tell her that someone had called their home phone, and all she could hear was heavy breathing on the other line. This had apparently happened several times that week. And Brandy told her mom it didn't scare her or make her feel uneasy, but she did want her to know it had happened again. Considering was this was the peak of prank calling and caller ID, star 69, none of that was a thing. Maybe Brandy thought that one of the other kids who was sick from school was trying to prank call her. Instead of calling the police to report it, because this has happened several times, um, Roxy called the phone company and reported it to them. Maybe things were different compared to now, but I'm not quite sure what she was trying to gain from that. What is the phone company supposed to do? Maybe they can block the number so it can't route to their line, maybe? I don't know. I don't know how phone companies worked then, because how would they know the number? I I have no idea. I don't know. I have no clue. 
But after she got off the phone with her mom, Brandy called one of her best friends who was also out of school with the flu. They had been calling one another and chatting most of the day off and on. The friend had decided that she wanted to take a nap, and Brandy stated that she wanted to take a bath, so they were just going to let each other go for the day. Before they hung up, Brandy told her that someone was knocking on the door. The friend begged Brandy not to answer the door, because she was home alone, obviously. Brandy was already at the door and told her friend, wait, it's okay. And then the phone line went dead. Her friend was startled and tried to call back several times, but there was no answer. Shortly after 3 p.m., high school ag teacher Mike Emenacker was leaving school after watching a Christmas play. He lived near the Pelts, so as he drove past, he noticed smoke billowing out of their home. He pulled into the next-door neighbor's home, went to the door, and asked them to call the fire department. He knew the Pelts had a dog, so he ran over to their home to let the dog out of the house and see if he could find anyone in the home before the fire department got there. When he got inside, he began looking through the house for anyone, and then then he found the body of 11-year-old Brandy Pelts, nude, face down in the overflowing bathtub. He tried to use CPR to revive her, but she had already been deceased for quite a while because rigor mortis had begun to set in. Mike ran outside to a different neighbor's home to call Roxy at the hardware store. So Mike Emenacker was an ag teacher and farmer nearly his entire life. He taught at Argus High School for 10 years, and then he left teaching for several years to work at the Plymouth Farm Bureau Co-op. I presume he left teaching because everything that happened with Brandy. But he did eventually go back to teaching. He ended up becoming the ag teacher at Triton High School in Bourbon for 18 years. And he eventually retired from Triton High School. So when the fire department arrived, they had found the source of the fire. It was located within Stephen and Roxy's bedroom, on their bed. There was no source of an accidental fire, and it was considered intentional. After the autopsy was conducted, they had discovered that Brandy had been raped. They concluded her cause of death was ligature strangulation, so she was strangled by a cord, a rope, something of that nature. But some sources stated that it was in fact a phone cord. She had not been burned, she had not inhaled smoke, and she did not drown. So the man who raped her, strangled her to death, put her in the bathtub face down, and left the water running, and then started the fire, probably to cover any evidence that was left. It's a good thing that that kid came by. That's crazy. The man, Mike? The man, sorry. He was, yeah, the ag teacher. <laughs> sorry. So, it's okay. So then he left the home, and she did have digested pizza in her stomach contents, so she had eaten with her mother when she had come home from work. Um, Brandy's funeral, there were tons of detectives and news reporters. Investigators were watching who was coming and going to the funeral and also were patrolling town to find anything out of the ordinary. This is where it gets kind of weird. Just five months after the murder, it was still fresh, the investigation ongoing, Steve and Roxy fostered two 10-year-old kids, a boy and a girl, five months after their only child died. After a year in their care, they chose to formally adopt the children. And then a year after that, the children were 12, 13 years old. They had the boy's name legally changed to Stephen Jr. The boy's name was not similar to Stephen's name at all. So I find that a bit odd. And then at 15, Roxy kicked the girl out of the house after she discovered that she had kissed a boy. And then she sent the boy back into the foster care system. 
So the the girl kissed the boy, both the foster kids, right? The girl kissed a boy, not a the brother. Boy. No, not so her brother. Just a boy. She got mad, kicked her out, and then also sent the boy back even though they changed his name? Yeah. Yep. What the f- I know. It doesn't make any That's sense. That's freaking weird. Both of their adopted children have been contacted, but the daughter doesn't want to talk to anyone about what had gone on, mostly because she's very sickly. She has MS. Um, She did allow her husband to speak, and he stated that they were on a gag order because the investigation was still active. I don't know if that's just like an excuse or if they were contacted by like the media, by like police, by sources that were writing about the story. Okay, okay. Um, but the daughter does have everything written down that went on, everything she went through, and her thoughts. She basically insinuated that Roxy is the reason for Brandy's murder. The adopted son had also been contacted, and he said that Stephen was a great guy, great person, but Roxy absolutely was not. So one of the biggest issues in all of this is the lack of suspects with credible evidence. It's mostly just circumstantial, layered with rumor and speculation, There's been talk of police corruption when really it could just be that the police force wasn't trained or large enough to handle these kinds of situations. Argus is a very small farm town. Not much crime happens, especially to this level. Resources aren't going to be poured into solving and training to handle murders when the likelihood of a murder happening are slim to none, which unfortunately isn't the case here when two happened two years apart from one another. What we know for sure is whoever did this had to know Brandy was home alone that day. And they had to have known Brandy. As I get into the rumored, keyword rumored, suspects, I want you to keep it to the forefront of your mind that they had nothing to go off of. The details of the investigation are pretty under wraps. I like to think that people were just coming up with whatever person they could think of that was odd. You know, what's that saying? Throw shit at the wall and see what sticks. That's what this makes me think of. (laughs) One suspect is Roxy's friend, Butch Van Bachter, who drove Roxy to her home during lunch that day. Butch had been a lie detector analyst for Ligonier, Indiana in the past, so Butch is also suspected of having an affair with Roxy, but this has not been proven. I don't think Roxy was very well liked. Does she admit to any affairs or does she deny it all? We'll get to that later. Okay. His family owned the pizza place in town, and he was also the nephew of a cop, John Van Bachter. So Butch's family was very well known in town. John Van Bachter was said to have been first on the scene of the crime, along with many other cops, EMTs, firefighters, etc. Considering we don't know what happened with Butch after he took Roxy back to work, whether he worked there as well or whether he went back to Roxy's house to Brandy, We do know he was just there, so he knew Brandy was home alone, and when Brandy was on the phone with her friend, she insinuated that she knew who was at the door knocking. She just saw Butch, so of course it would be okay to let him in. Mm -hmm. Something else I want to bring up is the fact that statistics prove murders and sexual assaults are most likely to be done by someone the victim knows or is close with. Three out of four child sex assault cases are carried out by someone who was very well known to their victim. It's easy access for them, they are trusted, and oftentimes they seek people out who they can gain relationships with to access their children. This is purely my own speculation, but could have 
Could Butch have been seeking out friendship with Roxy to gain a closer relationship with Brandy? Was he waiting for the perfect opportunity? This is where the police corruption comes into play, because some people believe Butch did do this, and since his uncle was an officer and his family was well-known within the town, they were able to sweep it all under the rug. But once again, this is a rumor and simply just a possible path of thought. Some people believe Roxy had something to do with the murder of Brandy. The theory behind this is she seemed very disconnected about the murder, to the point of not wanting to discuss it at all. Sometime after the murder, Roxy and Steve moved to Plymouth, Indiana, which is the next town over from Argus. Roxy started working at Walmart in Plymouth, and years after the murder, someone she knew came up to her to simply say hi, catch up, and just start a conversation. It eventually led to them asking about Brandy's case— And Roxy reacted very, very badly. She started yelling at the person and told told them to never say her daughter's name again, which, like I said in the beginning, everyone reacts to traumatic situations in their own ways, but she didn't seem to ever really push for the murder to be solved, and she almost seemed to push it away from her. I can't put my own thoughts and feelings to how I'd react in this case, but I'd like to think I'd do everything I could to possibly solve my daughter's murder if I were put in the situation. And Roxy really didn't do that. Was she known to have any, like, substance abuse problems or alcoholism or anything I like that? I don't believe or so. Or mental health issues? Nothing? I don't think so. I hmm. don't. None of that was ever stated. Yeah. So one of the detectives, detectives had allegedly told one of the adopted children that he believed Roxy came home from that day from lunch and caught Brandy talking to a boy on the phone, which considering not that long after, you know, several years after that, she did kick her adopted daughter out of her house for Mm -hmm. kissing a boy. Um, So she ended up getting just super pissed and strangled her with the phone cord. She was so distraught that she called Steve at work and had him come home to help set up the entire scene. But if they thought this, why didn't they pursue it any further? Why and how was she sexually assaulted then? And does Steve have an alibi for being at work. I'm yeah, assuming that's what so. I was going to ask, yeah. Unfortunately, anything Roxy did know about her daughter's death have been taken to the grave with her because Roxy died in 2019. I'm unsure why because frankly, I couldn't find an obituary or anything about Roxy's death. The only reason I know she is deceased is because of the Cold Case Chronicles podcast and the Justice for Brandy Pelt's Facebook page. They have photos of Brandy's gravestone Um, And it's a shared stone with her father's place there. And then Roxy's on the other side of Brandy. And Steve is still alive, but but Roxy's information's on the gravestone. One of the most obscure theories is the theory of the Englishman. This man was a husband of a friend of Roxy's, but the marriage only lasted for a few months. It ended around the time of the murder, and that's where the suspicion comes from. When they got divorced, he moved back to England— The talk of the town was he was abusive towards the friend, he was kind of odd to everyone, and he was obviously from out of the country. And we know how Indiana can be with unique people. (laughs) So obviously was Target because he was different. But oddly enough, and this is a weird fact that I learned in this case, there were a bunch of Englishmen that were in the area all the time because it was really common for people to come from England to scout motorcycles and ship them back home to sell. Apparently, after this man moved back to England, he wrote a letter to the local pastor, who was the Pelts pastor, asking how they were doing, and then the pastor just gave that to the police, but it didn't pan out to be anything. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's funny. You you looked at me when you when you said the motorcycle thing. I have a Norwegian friend that does that for his buddies up there. Comes no here time. and buys. Well, he lives here, but he buys a lot of motorcycles to ship back up to them. Hmm. That's so weird, yeah. huh? The more you know. So another obscure theory that is very parallel to the Englishman is the Guatemalan. He was listed as a suspect because he lived by the school, which I don't know why that's relevant, and he left the country shortly after the murder. One of the big rumors about him is that the Guatemalan's wife and Roxy were best friends, but allegedly Roxy was having an affair with him and she was concerned that she was pregnant. Once again, here we are. Some of the locals weren't used to being targeted, weren't used to being targeted, but I also read excuse me, I heard in the podcast that Roxy couldn't have any more children after she had Brandy, so. Yeah, like we're, that's such a, it's one thing to say, oh, they slept together, but who would start a rumor about her being pregnant? That just seems very, like, like a stretch, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the whole, the whole, it's nothing but rumors in this case. Yeah, it's and they were mind probably, blowing. I mean, he lived by the school. Did, did it say how they knew each other just because she was friends with his wife? Yep, that's it. Hmm. So another random theory is that the pastor was having an affair with Roxy, got mad at her, and took it out <laughs> on Brandy, which he denies ever having any kind of relationship with Roxy. This brings us to Mike Welch. He was a Marshall County officer on the case in the beginning, but he wasn't a police officer for much longer. Mike Welch had been charged with three counts of child molestation and one count of providing alcohol to a minor. He was from Bourbon, Indiana, and was charged after committing these crimes with force against a Bourbon girl under the age of 16. This all happened a month after Brandy's murder. He's brought into this because he was bragging to someone that he was, quote, the first on the scene of the crime, but so were about 10 other people saying that they were the first ones there. He also said that he was one of the fire inspectors, which isn't that the fire department's job, not the police force. He could have not had anything to do with it, but if you know anything about true crime, some people make sure to put themselves right in the middle of the crime to distract away from the fact that they are part of the crime. Mm-hmm. Mike is still alive and is rumored to be working at a bowling alley in Logansport, Indiana. One of the current most active suspects in the investigation is a close acquaintance of Steve and Roxy, who isn't named. The three had a really bad falling out, so it's suspected that he came to the house to retaliate against her parents, but instead he found Brandy. He already had a history of sexually abusing children, so he took complete advantage of the situation given by getting back at Roxy and Steven in the worst way possible. That's why he chose their bed as a big middle finger. He set it on fire and left the water running to help ruin any evidence of him being there. Let's discuss one of the biggest hot topics of this whole case, and to me, one of the biggest problems, the novel written. The book is called The Passerby, written by Thomas Crowell. Thomas is a lifelong Hoosier who still lives in northern Indiana. He lives in Culver, from my Mm. understanding, and I believe he's about in his 80s at this point. It's key for me to note that he has no experience within true crime or criminal investigation or even true crime journalism or any kind of writing prior to writing this book. He was originally a salesman for a multi-million dollar company, although I'm unsure of which one, but he wrote his first book in 1997 and it was titled Simple Selling, Common Sense That Guarantees Your Success. And then he wrote another book in 2000 titled 
Dirty Little Tricks, How Salesmen Are Robbing You Blind. Yeah. <laughs> Jump from one end of the pool to the other, huh? Yeah. So then he released the book The Passerby in 2006. And the story of how he discovered Brandy and wrote this book is kind of just wacky. Thomas states that he had originally heard about the brutal slaying of Argus resident Darlene Hulse, the woman I had covered several episodes back, but he had taken a trip to the cemetery in Argus looking for her gravesite because he wanted to write a book about her story. While he was searching, he came across the headstone of Brandy and then was curious about what happened because she had died so young. He then spoke to a farmer friend who lived by asking him questions about what happened and come to find out her murder was also unsolved and with little to no leads. It was then that he decided to switch his course of action and took and t- took Brandy's case to look into instead. Which, I don't know, I just find it odd that he came across this grave in the middle of a thousand others and it stuck out like it did. It's just ironic. Mm-hmm. He is from northern Indiana, and this was a big case in every newspaper. You mean to tell me that he had no prior knowledge of Brandy's unsolved murder? I just find it kind of ironic and that he's making up this story to make it seem like divine to intervention. To like it. Yes. Yeah. Or make it something that it's just simply not. I could be totally wrong, but my opinion is this guy is full-on theatrical, and I just don't trust him. Yeah, he's a salesman. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So the novel is fact-based fiction. Thomas Crowell researched, and we're putting that in quotes, Brandy's case for three years. Although I speculate this claim myself because he stated at one point that he only pulled one article, The Plymouth Pilot, which mistook a key piece of evidence. They stated that Mike Emenacher, the one who found the fire, Mm -hmm. took Brandy out of the bathtub and then placed her back in the bathtub which for some reason has Thomas convinced that this evidence is what makes him the murderer, which that doesn't seem like a good reason enough to me. And based on every other piece of media, it's simply not true. The book uses different names for each person, I'm assuming for legal purposes, but he's very forthcoming saying that this is all fact and based on his three years of research. When this novel was released, it caused a lot of turmoil in Argus. Since Thomas is so serious about everything in the book being true, it caused a lot of people to suspect others that possibly had absolutely nothing to do with it. He quoted people as saying and doing things that they never said or did. It pinned a lot of people against one another that otherwise wouldn't have had any other reason because there's no evidence based on the suggestions put forward in this book. There were people that were in the book under different names that refused to speak any more about the Brandy Peltz case because Thomas Crowell portrayed people as being or saying things that they didn't. And since he changed the names, they can't sue for defamation or anything like that because it's quote unquote fictional, right? Yep. And from my understanding, pretty much everybody in the book, he details them so precisely. Yeah, you know who it is. You know. But since all you got to do is put those words. Yep. Wow. And you can say... Especially in a small town like Argus. Yep, yeah. absolutely. And you can say this is, you know, based off this story, or I, I referenced the story of Brandy mm-hmm. Peltz, and then it's all fiction. it's all fictional, yeah. Yep. It's fact-based any, fiction. Any likeliness is purely coincidental or whatever, yep. yeah. Yep. Wow, 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 wow. Mm-hmm. Thomas Crowell says that the whole book is truths, but he says there are tons of things that are changed or added up or, excuse me, changed, added, or made up. 
to make the book sound better, to make the story flow better. That doesn't mean that's not all true. Yep, or simply just make sense. But he's changed a whole lot more, and people are taking it as full truths, making up stories that incriminate people. Still to this day, there are rumors that are spread within Argus that were started based on this book. I didn't read the book because I frankly didn't want to because I know it's essentially a bunch of fabricated bullshit. Yeah, it sounds like garbage. Yeah. And I want to stress that if you do choose to read it, remember that it's done more harm to this case and to the town of Argus than it was good. It has good. Essentially, the book states that Mike Emmenacker, who was the one was the one that did this, um, thus the title, The Passerby. And I can mm. only presume that the book really damaged his reputation as a person and as a teacher. Thomas's theory is that Roxy and Butch were visiting for lunch. Mike drove by and saw a car parked there. Thomas alludes that Roxy and Mike were having an affair. Mike thought Roxy had a lover and became jealous and vengeful. He then saw them leave work or leave and went to ask Brandy what was going on with her mom and Butch, then took out his anger on her. There's quite literally no evidence of Mike being the suspect at all. Yeah, that's the dumbest scenario that you get. And that doesn't make sense. From my understanding, there's like a shit ton of characters within the book that you can't, you can barely keep them straight as it is. It's and like, it's poorly why written. Why wouldn't he just say he was just waiting for her to be alone? Why would he make this huge story about him being jealous and taking it out on her? That doesn't even yeah. make sense. Nope. He went there to ask an 11 year old about what her mom's doing with. And then took it out on her. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah right. So Thomas basically became hyper fixated in this theory simply because Mike was the first person to find Brandy. And even though there was no evidence, he basically manipulated a false story based off whole truths, using his word, to convince readers that it was Mike. He can only guess, we can only guess on what his endgame was in all of this. Drama. To yeah. sell books. Yes. Yeah, he's a salesman. Yep. yep. Not no, uh, no offense to any salesman out there. I'm sure <laughs> some of you are okay. Some of you are all right. <laughs> <laughs> Just do what we got to do. Uh, I truly do not believe Mike had anything to do with this murder. People stated that he held on to it, held on to what happened for quite literally the rest of his life. And it led to a lot of personal problems for him. Not only fighting this 11-year-old girl's body in a bathtub, but he was then pinned for the murder. But Mike passed away from natural causes on November 18th of 2017. After the book was released, it caused the case to get back into the spotlight, which is probably the only good thing that Thomas Crowell ever did. Previously, the case was in the hands of Marshall County Police, but now the Indiana State Police have taken it on, and they're putting new eyes on it. Now that DNA has advanced, I'm hoping that they did get DNA samples off of Brandy to run through forensic testing. It's been over 35 years. So many people who were involved could have already passed away and sadly they are losing more and more information okay so i really want to bring this into the conversation because yes investigators have labeled these cases as not having any direct connection at this time but i really think it needs to be reconsidered after connecting a lot of the dots linda weldy was a 10 year old girl from laporte indiana she went missing in 1987 after getting off the school bus Linda was found strangled to death in a farmer's field 22 days after she disappeared. Her killer has never been found. April Tinsley was an 8-year-old girl from Fort Wayne, Indiana. She was kidnapped, raped, and murdered in 1988. She was strangled to death. Her killer left anonymous messages around Fort Wayne on young girls' bikes and mailboxes between 1990 and 2004, saying that he would kill again. 
In 2008, her murderer was found by forensic genealogy, and his name is John Miller. Darlene Hulse was a mother of three girls, aged eight, six, and almost a year. And she was abducted from her home after a struggle in Argus, Indiana, in 1984. She was found the next morning near a field, and her cause of death was blunt force trauma. Her murder has never been solved. So to me, there is something here. I've not looked super deep into any other murders of young girls in the 80s, and these are simply the ones that I have found and went, wait a minute. Authorities don't think there is a connection, but I want to look at the similarities here. These all occurred within a small time frame, 1984 to 1988. Brandy, Linda, April, and Darlene's oldest daughter were all around the same age. They all looked similar. They all had blonde hair, and all four cases are within northern Indiana. Brandy, Linda, and April all died from strangulation and were assaulted. Darlene was not sexually assaulted, and they are unsure of a motive to this crime at all. The cars seen at the Pelt's home, suspected to be Butch's car, and Darlene Hulse's homes both had a 1970-ish blue-green Chevy. Could this be a coincidence? Possibly. I don't know. But I can't stress enough that this is purely on my own wheels turning and speculation. Could these crimes be connected in some way? Is Darlene's murders such an enigma because she wasn't the intended target? Her daughters were. Maybe the suspect wasn't intending for her to be home or for her to put up such a fight. And that's why she became the victim. For me, there are too many similarities screaming that there is a connection. It's finding the evidence to formally link them. And I just want to mention one last thing before we jump into our conversation, because it really pisses me off. (laughs) On the Indiana State Police website, literally, in.gov, with Brandy's entire profile on it, they have Brandy's first name misspelled. I rechecked it like a million times to make sure I wasn't misreading it, but nope, her gravestone is spelled one way, and the case file on the state website is spelled incorrectly. Mm. So that's my story. Ashley, Jeremy... I have one question. So Butch drove a blue-green Chevy? Mm-hmm. Hmm. 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 That's weird. Yeah. So that's three out of how many did you list? Five? Or six? That's, I mean... Butch had a a blue-green Chevy, a 1970-ish, I think it was an Impala. And also, the man... The, the car that they saw at Darlene Hulse's house the day she was abducted was a blue-green Chevy Impala-looking mm. car around the same year. Yeah, I mean, like, someone just happens to see it. They don't always know, like, yeah. make and model and everything. And the, the one for da- Darlene's case, it was, like rusty a little bit but i don't know they never said anything about what butch's car looked like yeah like the condition yeah i don't know if like that like teal color was popular in the 1970s and that's what most cars were colored didn't we have a a conversation see the darlene one was when you guys were still recording at the house yes yeah and i think you and me had a text conversation about that car because it got impounded yeah Mm -hmm. and my thought was that the car was actually um, taken by a police officer. And, and yeah. that's, that was my connection of why I thought maybe that car was used in several. Well, and that's another <clears throat> thing is they said that that car was impounded before Darlene was abducted, but that was the car that they saw 
Right. And it met yeah, the criteria. Well, what was that Chomo cop you were talking about, right? Yeah. Mike Welch. He probably he was like a sheriff. No, he was just a cop, just oh. an officer. Who would probably have access to impound vehicles? Possibly. Hmm. And that's kind of a stretch, but that was that was my you never thought. Know. When I, was, when I, I mean, was these from... are all stretched. You know, think about them. It's it's just wild. I mean, you... some of the solved cases you you can't write them. It's just the madness. Too wacky. Yeah. I Do mean... you believe after your research and after going through all this that her mother did it? What's your gut? What what does your I, gut like, say? When you say her mother did it, what I mean, I just don't, I don't understand those words in that way. Like her mother did it, like murdered her, like sexually assaulted and killed her. I mean, uh, no, I think that she. I, I mean, it's possible that she had, if she was having these affairs, she had a friend, and he did it. Maybe she helped cover up the situation. I don't know. Maybe she knew more than what she let on. Uh, well, let me ask you this. You is think, it, sorry, uh, no, go ahead. you think she knew more or you're just saying like I think possibly. she knew more. Oh, I okay. think she knew more. Okay. Well, speculate a bit farther. You said that Brandy had pizza in her belly so that you know that Butch and Roxanne brought the pizza back. She had pizza. Did it all happen when they were still there and left? No, because the manager at the hardware store did say that she called Roxy at 1 p.m. Gotcha. She had confirmed and that at 1 And she was on the phone PM. with her friend when the door, when the knocking on the door. Okay. Yes. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I'm just, there's well, so much involved that's twirling around. Yeah, and she had to have known who it was because she was she like, said, no, it's, it's okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's okay. That's so eerie. And she would open the door. Oh, I know. I just it got the chills. want to puke because it's like, there was thought put into this. There was a lot of thought put into whatever happened. And I don't know. Brandy literally always is in the back of my head when I think about true crime. I know. You've always talked about her case. There's something about it. Mm-hmm. And I really, Well, it's because it's super close to home, no matter how you look at it. Especially. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, so this and you, guy yeah. presumably lives within a 20-mile radius of all of us. Mm-hmm. And I can't Closer shake it. I cannot shake <laughs> that. All these are connected in some way. If the guy's still alive, even. But yeah, to make that connection. Now, can I ask you four, something? It was four years. Did you read about someone speculating that they were possibly going after no. Darlene's children? Or you came up with that I on your own? I came up with that on my own. Wowza. Because, it, I mean, she put up a huge fight, which obviously, who wouldn't? Right. But... The girls had left, and it makes me wonder, did he, like, try to, like, she was going at him because he was trying to go after the girls, and that's why she put up a huge fight. That's why the baby was fine. She got him back in the house. Like, I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. I find it odd that the three girls died from strangulation. Yeah. Um, I find it odd that it's not, those all aren't too far from each other. I mean, it's not, like, a super close proximity. Usually when they say serial killers, it's, like, within the same, like, 30-mile radius, but this is Indiana I think and up TV, here. TV, maybe, but I don't think in... No, and serial killers... Is it really? Mm-hmm, they, they usually, like, when they suspect a serial killer, they want to see the same kind of murder, the same kind of person, the same... I mean, they want them to look kind of similar, yeah. the same it, walks alive. Like, it's there's hard a, to, an MO that they have. Yeah, it's hard to even call it a serial killer if they cross state lines or go too far out, because it's hard to link them then. Yeah. Hmm. 
which mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think that, I mean, you could be a serial killer and strangle somebody and then stab them and then, sh- like, shoot them with a gun. Like, mm-hmm. I think... But generally, there's a mental component to it, a psychological component yes. to it, and it's why you do yep. it the way that you do it. Yep. And... Ugh, why they do it the way that they well, do Well, and I feel like it takes... I mean, obviously, it takes some monster to murder a child, but strangulation, man... You're looking at them in their face. That's a hate. That's a hateful thing. Yeah. Ugh. That's personal. Ugh. I know. Yeah, I've done a couple like kind of lighthearted, more lighthearted cases that we can kind of goof off about. So I was like, let's give them a doozy. You haven't. Okay, I'm doing my next one's going to be super lighthearted. <laughs> it's a lot. If you or anyone you know may have information on this case, please give any tips over to the Indiana State Police Detective Investigative Commander at 1-800-552-2959 or at 574-546-4900. Talk to family, talk to friends, just talk to anyone you know that may remember what had went on in Argus. 35 years is a long time, and this case deserves to be solved. To view information and case files about this story and other stories we cover, feel free to check out our Facebook, our Twitter, and our Instagram. And while you're there, give us a quick follow. We are available anywhere that you enjoy listening to podcasts, so please make sure to share our podcast. And I know I sound like a broken record, but please go ahead and give us a follow on Spotify and Apple. And then please rate and review. This helps us immensely when it comes to getting ads and ratings in the charts. It's quick. It's easy. It's free. It's painless. And it's just a way to help support the podcast. Feel free to search for our partners, Golden Image Podcasts, and give them a listen. They also have social media, so please be sure to follow them for more information on upcoming episodes. So, Ashley, sorry this was a bummer. Jeremy, sorry this was a bummer. But thanks, you guys. I'm feeling a little down right now. I'm yeah, sorry. Me too. I'm so well, sorry. Well, and you covered it so well. Like, you did. We didn't even yeah, have, we couldn't we did, even ask any questions or like. You did a, yeah, you did a great job. I questions, just come, Jeremy. I know. Do look, you? look, it's terrible. Your notepad is. Oh, I actually did have a question about the neighbors and then they kind of, I don't know how to. So Abernaki was coming back through and then he went to the neighbor's house. So the neighbors were. Abernaker. Abernaker. Abernaki. I'm sorry. I had the wrong name. I'm. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> He, and then he went to the neighbors to call the fire department, correct? Yes. The neighbors were home? I, both neighbors were home in that area. So He went to one and had them call the fire department and then went to the other one to have them call Roxy. I don't know if they were like elderly or if like it was a stay-at-home mom or something, but they sh- should have seen something about something. who was there, I would think. That, that was my question. I know her house was kind of in a rural area. Was it? Yeah, so I don't know if these were far away neighbors and he had to like drive to their house. I think of your grandpa's house. See, I, would I never was picturing like in town towards like he ran out the door and then ran up someone's stairs and like went to their front porch. Like, yeah, just, I don't like, a think block I think it was kind of in a rural part where there wasn't a okay. lot of which, housing development. Which which person lived closer to the school? Didn't we talk about somebody living closer to the that school? That was the Guatemalan. Yes, okay. the Guatemalan. Yeah. It was a lot of information. That, yeah, it was it a was. great. You did a great job. You did a lot. You're such it was, a gifted storyteller. That's why have, it took me so long. You see us. You look over at us, and we just we're just <laughs> stuck. We're just so zoned in on listening to your story that I mm-hmm. forgot to write notes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, thank you like, guys. 
thanks for going on this kind of shitty journey with me, but I cannot tell her story. Yeah, thanks for taking one for the team and covering yeah. that. That's a tough one. <sighs> All right. Until next week, guys, stay safe out there. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>